Will you all pray with me? Father God, thank you again for this morning, and thank you just that we have breath just once again. God, that's such a blessing, and that um, it's the Advent time of year where we're, we're preparing the way for your son. So just let that be the theme of, of these words this morning. May they not even be my words. God, may they, may they truly just be from you, and uh, that you would just say what you want to your people today. Pray for your spirit to be upon this place, and it's in your son's name we pray all these things. Amen. Good morning again. That's right. They left the young guy in charge today, guys. It's about to get wild. Not really. Um, But we are starting an Advent series this morning, a series to prepare the way for Christmas, and so it's my honor and my privilege to give the first Christmas message, and so in the spirit of that, I thought I would start us off by letting you guys know about some ways that we knew Christmas was coming in the Steinman home, right? There were a few signs that kind of made it pretty clear Christmas was on its way. Number one was that the siblings, my three sisters and I, we suddenly just miraculously started getting along a lot better, you know? We knew at the end of the month there was a big payoff if we could hold it together for 25 days, and so, uh, you know, I was a gentleman. I was opening doors for my sisters. They weren't antagonizing me. It was just, it was a very peaceful lead up to Christmas in the Simon home. December was by far the quietest month in the house. We weren't being crazy. Um, the next one is that, uh, it's kind of a weird one, but there were candy cane stashes that started like appearing around the house, right? Because I don't know about your family, but in my family, we decorate the tree, and a part of decorating the tree is putting candy canes on it, right? And so us being selfish, each of us kids wanting our own, um, the tree would start with candy canes the first night, but the next day and every day after, it would kind of dwindle because we would all grab a few of ours and go hide them in our own special place in the house like squirrels, right? So we were stashing candy canes everywhere. So like mom would reach up high for a cabinet and like candy canes would fall out and some kid would like sprint in and grab them because they were their candy canes now and they would go hide them. And so it was weird. Their mom would go in the, the laundry room and open like the box of detergent and there'd be candy canes. It was just weird. You were just finding candy random places and, and we knew it was Christmas time for that reason. The last way and the best way that I knew Christmas was coming um, was Black Friday. Now Black Friday used to be a bigger deal than it is now because now you can go like all week or the day before or whatever and it's not as big. But when I was a kid, Black Friday was our jam. Like I don't know if it's because we had four kids and not a lot of money, but mom got those deals. Like, she didn't care what she had to do, she got them. And so, I always remember the night of Thanksgiving, you know, the next day the men are getting ready because we're going to go hunt, right? And so we're getting our gun, we're, we're at the table, we're cleaning our guns, we're pumping our shotguns, we're loading our vests with, with shells, we're like making sure we're ready to go. And I always think on the other side of the table, the women were like loading their purses, right? Like they were ready to go for their own battle. Like they've got these coupons, mom would circle exactly what she needed. They're like drawn up battle plans of like where they're going to go and when because there's such a limited amount of time. Like it was, it was like Eisenhower level strategy happening on that side of the table. And, and then even better than the prep for Black Friday were the stories, the war stories that mom would bring home because this lady, she did everything she could to get every deal on Black Friday. And so she would come home and she would tell you about, about how her morning went and it was seriously like, like listening to the Band of Brothers documentary interviews. Like, it was, it was wartime. Like, she'd be sitting there like, it was 4 a.m. and the enemy was close and <laughs> I didn't know if we were gonna make it to sunrise. You know, like, just, she was so into it and I loved it. I loved just how serious she got into it. 
Well, there are other ways that the rest of the world, um, other more normal ways probably, that the rest of the world prepares for Christmas, right? And there's a few, there's a few ways that we all know that we, we see these things happening and it's the build-up to Christmas. First of all, obviously, Christmas music, right? Which, which everyone we know starts too early. I don't even have to say that, but it's interesting because we just... We just rewrote our church constitution and bylaws, and I'm pretty sure we put something in there about when Christian music or when Christmas music can be played, right? So if you're a member, I'm pretty sure you're contractually obligated to only play music in December. If you don't, I think you have to go be a Methodist or something. I don't know. We might kick you out. I wouldn't push it. Pastor Al seemed pretty serious about it, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't test him. The next one, of course, is that uh, Christmas lights. Christmas lights go up everywhere. And the funny thing about Christmas lights is there's always those houses that never take their lights down, right? And so for 11 months out of the year, you're driving by these houses and you're like, look at these guys. June, they have their lights up, right? What losers. But guess what? December 1, they have their lights up before you. And they're ready, you know? So some people want to call those houses lazy, but I say they're prepared, man. So if that's you, I respect it. That was, because I was a sucker on my roof yesterday trying to put up Christmas lights in that frozen rain stuff. So I should have just kept them up. I should have done that. The last one is that, uh, the last sign that Christmas is coming is that stores are just unbearable, man. Oh my gosh, if you've ever gone in a store in December, you know, women, maybe you thrive on it, maybe it's like exciting for you, but for guys, we're like, it's the worst thing ever. Like, I will take a bullet before I go in Walmart in December. Like, it will not happen for me ever, ever, ever. It's insane in there. So we know that holiday prep, this holiday buildup, it's a big deal to us, right? Um, it's almost as if we enjoy the build-up to Christmas as much as Christmas itself. I was at youth group this week and was talking to a young lady, and I asked her what her favorite uh, holiday was, right? And she told me Christmas, and I said, why? And she said, well, because it's, it's almost like Christmas isn't just a day, it's a whole month, right? Like, it's, it's such a long season, and, and we get to enjoy all of it, and it's so cool. And I said, well, that's a really good way to look at it. That's really true, and, and I remember feeling the same way. Like, I remember when I was a kid— um, the TV special, the ABC Family Christmas special, 25 Days of Christmas. 90s kids, are you out there? Maybe not, but dude, every night on ABC Family, there was a new Christmas movie leading up to Christmas, and I loved it, because they always started with like these fringe movies that no one really knew about, and as it got closer, they played the good stuff. You know, they brought out like Jack Frost or Frosty the Snowman, like these really good movies, and so as the movies got better, you knew that like Christmas was getting closer and closer, and I loved I love that build-up to the holiday. Well, guys, today what I want to do is I want to talk about the build-up. I want to talk about the preparation on God's part in setting into motion um, these events that allowed Jesus to be born that night in the manger. I want to focus on everything that he did in preparation for that night. And then in light of that, I also want to examine um, the preparation that has to happen in our hearts as we enter this Christmas season. So to start off, um, I don't have a slide for you, but we're going to read Isaiah 40. 1 through 8, um, I think it was in your bulletin, you were given a heads up possibly. So if you want to turn there, go ahead. We will not have a slide, just your, just your Bible today. So Isaiah 41 through 8, I'm going to go ahead and read it for you here. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Tell her that her sad days are gone and her sins are pardoned. Yes, the Lord has punished her twice over for all her sins. Listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness for the Lord. Make straight a highway through the wasteland for our God. 
Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and the people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. And a voice said, shout. And I asked, what should I shout? Shout that people are like the grass. Their beauty fades as quickly as the flowers in a field. The grass withers and the flowers fade beneath the breath of the Lord. And so it is with people. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. So we see the prophet Isaiah here, and he is talking to the Israelite people. And they are coming back to their homeland of Israel after dealing with the long um, exile in Babylon, right? And so he is saying, Israelites, this is your chance to get it right. Turn back to God. In the first part there, he says, you've been, tw- you've been punished twice over. He says, your punishment is over. Now we're going back to Israel. Prepare your hearts for God. Prepare to turn back to him, right? And if things started to look really familiar there in verse three, that's because those are the words of John the Baptist in, in Matthew as he is preparing the way for Jesus too. And he is, he is telling people, you know, Jesus is close. Prepare your hearts. He's coming. Get ready for this. And so um, we just see this preparation for for the arrival of a savior here. And this preparation that's, that they're both calling for, these are, this is a moral and a spiritual preparation and it's something that has to happen within them, right? It's something that has to happen inside their hearts. And it's described um, by the Bible scholar G. Campbell Morgan like this. Just kidding. There it is. He says, G. Campbell Morgan says this, the faithful among men prepare his way and make straight his highway when they yield to him their complete loyalty, and confide in him alone. You see, guys, this is a call to us as well. This is a call for us to prepare our hearts for Jesus as well this Christmas season. And it's important to remember that there was also a great deal of preparation on God's part, like I said before, in leading up to the nativity, because I think we miss a lot of the Christmas story if we, if we don't consider the things that happened before that, if we don't consider the buildup to the nativity that night, because you know, a lot of us are going to read the nativity story this time of year um, at night with our kids or at some point, and it's, it's great to set up the nativity scene and maybe even like act out with the characters what happened that night, and, and we have songs about that night. You know, we talk about the bewilderment of the shepherds and the journey of the wise men, and we talk about the bravery and the gentleness of Mary in that, in that crazy situation, and all these things, they're, they're good, and they deserve to be sung about but I think we really get shorted if we don't consider the miraculous events that led up to this night. And if we just focus on this night, we just miss so, so much. So let's talk about this buildup. Let's talk about the buildup that God had for the Christmas story. We're gonna go through a few points here and just discuss the way that God built up to this event. So number one, um, the buildup to the nativity, it began before time, right? Um, Anytime I encounter a new believer, whether it's at youth group or, I mean, anywhere, um, they always are asking, what's the first thing I should read in the Bible, right? And I always point them to the Gospel of John because it's so chock full of good things. It just hits you right in the mouth, right away with the greatness of Jesus and what he was doing, right? And so they always come back, oh, John was, was great. It was, it was so cool to see Jesus and how he lived. And, and I'm like, yeah, you know, that is really cool, but you know what's even cooler is if you go back and read the Old Testament and see all of the ways that Jesus came to be, that he didn't just plop down and, and happen one day. There was this huge buildup for hundreds of years, and if you go back and read that, you really get a sense of the whole story, and you can appreciate Jesus all the more in light of it, right? Um, now, I don't want to trivialize the Bible, 
but I see a very strong correlation between what I'm saying here and the Jason Bourne movies. Has anyone seen the Jason Bourne movies? If you, ha if you have not seen the Jason Bourne movies, you have my permission and God's permission to leave right now and to go enter a six and a half roller coaster ride of that trilogy because it is six and a half hour roller coaster ride because it is great. Just watch them back to back to back. They're awesome. And the reason I think that it ties into this is because in the Bourne movies, the premise, if you haven't seen it, is that Jason Bourne is this agent, right? And he is so good at his job. He's a ghost. He can do whatever. And so the caveat to this is that he doesn't really understand who he is. Like, he's good at being a spy, but he doesn't know why. He doesn't know his real name. He doesn't know where he's from. And so kind of the subplot of this movie is that he is going back and he's trying to understand who he really is, right? So if, there's three movies, like I said, and so if you watch the first one, it's awesome. There's action, there's lots of good stuff, it's great writing. But the more you watch the second and third movie is where you really start to get the whole story of Jason Bourne, right? Like you get to go back into his past and see like, oh, that's why he is this way because this happened so long ago and, and you're not just confined to this Jason Bourne here, but you see his whole story, right? And I just see that so prevalent um, in, the, in the way that we read the Old Testament leading up to Jesus because in the same way, the more you read, the more you get this full picture, this full plot line of what really happened. It makes you appreciate Jesus and his story so, so much more. You see, you see the prophets and you see the way that they predicted Jesus would come to be in just the way that he would so many hundreds of years before. And you get to see God's hand on his people as he is guiding them through every situation, as he is preserving that line of David so that Jesus could one day be born. It's really, really astounding stuff to see that. So really quickly, let's just, we're not gonna hit everything because there's a lot of references to Jesus in the Old Testament, but let's hit just a few. Let's go to the first one here. Um, is Genesis 3.15, the very first time we learn about Jesus in the Old Testament, the first time he's referenced, and it says this. This is God talking to Satan, and he says, and I will put en enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And here we see God from the jump just letting Satan know Jesus is going to defeat you. Like you have no chance. He is declaring that even though sin has become a problem, that he saw this coming and Satan still has no chance for victory in our lives. That's good news, amen? That is good, good news. Um, we'll go quickly to the next one, Isaiah 7.14. Jesus is referenced again by the prophet Isaiah, and he says this. He says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call his name Emmanuel. One of the times Jesus is foretold. And then again in Isaiah 9.6, he says this, the prophet does. He says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And there are also a few spots in the New Testament where they don't, um, it's not so much about talking about Jesus in the Old Testament, but, but they really cement his, his deity. They really cement the fact that he is an eternal person, an eternal God, and that he didn't just simply come to be in the nativity, right? And so there's a few verses that demonstrate this. So we'll look at just a couple of them. The first one, the best one is John 1, proving here that Jesus always existed. 1, 1 through 5. Read this with me here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. 
the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So I like this for a few reasons. One is that in John 1, it just puts to rest any thought, any idea that Jesus is not God and that he's not eternal, right? Um, A lot of fringe people in religion or other religions want to argue that Jesus is a prophet, and we see here, we know that Jesus is indeed God, and that, and, and that the other reason I like this is because um, Jesus is not simply referred to as an idea that God had back then, right? He's not just a conception of, of God says, well, now man has sinned, so I've got to think up this thing, and Jesus didn't just exist in an idea in the beginning, but he existed himself. He was God. He was with God, solidifying him as deity with him. The next and final place that I want to talk about Jesus' eternality here is Revelation 13.8. And we won't turn there, but I'll read you this. It, it mentions here, it references the lamb that was slain before the creation of the world. Right? The lamb that was slain before the creation of the world. And so here we see not only that Jesus most certainly existed before the world began, but that he was always the plan for our salvation. Right? It's not like Jesus and God were up in heaven and man sins, and God looks at Jesus, and he's like, mm, I think your number's up. I think you have to go down. No, he was always the plan, right? It was always in the cards for Jesus to be our way to salvation. And so we see here that before God even made us, he made a way to be with us, right? Now, if you sit there and you chew on that, it'll chew you up, actually, because that's about a mile deep, um, and it's really impossible for us to understand, just the depth of that and, and how wise God has to be to be able to do that. But basically, he started preparing for our consequences before sin was even an issue, right? He knew it was going to be an issue, and he was prepared ahead of time. See, God saw our sin coming, and he planned a way around it before it was even a thing. It's crazy to think about. Now, far be it from me to compare myself to God. I would never do that. But I, too, see sin coming, in someone's life, in, in my daughter Maggie's life. I see sin coming in her. Now, Maggie, if you don't know her, um, she's a year old, and she just learned to walk, so she's not super mobile yet, but this child is in the 91st percentile for height, and she can reach most things. She is tall, right? And so I just see down the line, I'm like, I see sin coming, God. Like, I know this child, when she decides to disobey, is going to be able to reach anything, and she is going to get into everything. And so What Katie and I did in our wisdom as parents, because on the first one, you know what you're doing, right? Um, We went ahead ahead and bought her a whooping stick because we got to just have it ready for, you know, in the name of the Lord, discipline this child. So this is Maggie with her whooping stick, (laughs) and she loves it, man. I mean, she is ready to be disciplined in the name of the Lord. She She is not afraid. Oh, that child. Okay. She is ready for it, man. Okay. Sadly, we have to leave this slide. We have to go to the next one. This is number two, the build-up. Number two, the build-up to the nativity, it models God's desire to redeem us long before that night in Bethlehem. You see, guys, the Old Testament is full of humans that are wicked and full of humans that are rejecting God. And in fact, in Genesis 6, it's proclaimed that the whole earth is wicked, right? Like there's nothing good about it already, um, and the Old Testament, it's full, the Old Testament is full of stories of this rejection of God. It's full of idolatry and infidelity and murder and deception and greed. And these aren't done solely by the pagans. It's not like these are things done by people who don't know God. These are do- done by God's people, right? The ones who are supposed to know God and proclaim him in their lives. 
they're the ones doing this. Um, they're the ones caught in their sin. But praise God that he does not desert his people in their sin, amen? That's good for us, that he instead, instead of deserting us, redeems us. That's what God does. He's a redeemer. And so we see this a few places. This, of course, isn't all of them, but just a few key spots where God chooses to redeem instead of desert his people. So first of all, um, Moses, the short-tempered murderer Moses, um, who is a coward, who cannot speak, who stutters, reminds me a lot of myself sometimes. God uses him to be the leader that's going to take Israel out of Egypt towards this promised land. He is one of the greatest leaders in Israelite history, and if you've read his resume, this is a messed up guy, big time, but God redeems him. Um, next, we see the, the scared, whiny, unthankful Israelites, right? This group of God's people who he has set apart, who he is protecting, and what do they do? All they do is doubt. All they do is worship anything that moves. All they do is find any way they can to go around God to get what they want, and God doesn't leave them. Well, he does for 40 years in the desert, but he comes back, and he redeems them, right? And he has a plan for them, and he has a land for them, despite the fact that they don't deserve it. The last example, um, the, the, the adulterer David. We see that he was an adulterer, that he had his own deep, dark sins, but God transforms him, God redeems him to become the greatest king that Israel ever had, right? God doesn't leave his people, he redeems them. And we see that this, that Jesus' birth isn't the first time that God starts doing that. It's proven by this, that God always put redemption into his plan for us. From day one, it was a part of it. It wasn't like Jesus' nativity story was the first time he reached down. No, he has always looked to redeem his people from the very, very beginning. So that's number two. If you're, if you're taking your notes, number three is coming up next. Number three right here is the buildup to the nativity. It took everybody by surprise, right? Took everybody by surprise. And so Let's look at a few different characters and how they reacted to it here. First of all um, is Mary, right? Mary is labeled as, quote, confused and disturbed in Luke 129 at the events that are happening. And wouldn't you be too if you put yourself in her shoes? Confused and disturbed. I think the reason that those two words resonate with me so much is because I saw um, those two words in, in Katie, my wife, the first time I told her that I loved her. It was... It didn't go like I planned, for sure. I'm not going to tell the whole story up here because it doesn't deserve to be told on the church stage. But if you want to ask Katie about it, she was a little taken back, but we've moved past it. And now when I say it to her, it's still a little bit of confusion and disturb, but <laughs> less for sure, less for sure, right? We're making progress. So Mary, confused and disturbed. The next one, uh, sorry, the next one is Joseph, right? And you got to remember that at the beginning of this story, Joseph is thinking breakup, right? Like we, we enter into Joseph's story and he is a God-fearing man and Mary is a God-fearing woman and for all intents and purposes, they're a church couple, right? And they're engaged to be married, <clears throat> excuse me, and one day Mary shows up and she's pregnant and Joseph is just, just put yourself in his shoes for a minute, like he's floored, you know? In the Bible, it just says that he was a godly man and he chose to um, separate from her quietly and respectfully as not to, to dishonor her name, which is great, but, but just, just think about the inner turmoil in Joseph in this moment. Like, his fiance, who is a God-fearing woman, shows up pregnant, and it's not by him. Like, his world is crashing down in this moment, and so we find him, and he is thinking breakup, right? He's thinking, I don't know what I'm going to do now. Mary was my world, and I don't know what to do. Now, obviously, God enters into the situation, but you just got to remember 
when we enter the story, Joseph is, to say the least, a little confused and disturbed, right? He, his world is coming down. The next one that is surprised by the nativity story is Herod and all of Jerusalem. And in chapter 2 um, of Matthew, it says, quote, they're, quote, dis- deeply disturbed. Now, the fact that Herod is deeply disturbed doesn't really surprise me because he is the king. And so when these wise men waltz into his palace and tell him that a new king has been born, you'd be a little on edge, right? But the one that gets me is the whole city of Jerusalem, like a whole society is on edge, is, is wondering who this must be. And so I can just imagine walking around the city at that time and everywhere people are talking about this. They're, they're nervous about it. They're, they're surprised by it. This came out of nowhere. And they're just like, what is happening? Could this be the Savior that was promised? Is it someone else? We don't know. And so this whole city is kind of on edge through this whole thing. And then the last one that were, that were surprised, those poor shepherds, man. If you go back and read Luke 2, they're, they're terrified, man. If you can just imagine the scene that they had to endure, these angels coming and speaking to them, um, just crazy, just crazy the things that they saw that night for sure. So they were surprised to say the least. Now guys, it's fun to go back and read the Christmas story and to look back and to enjoy kind of almost at their expense how God used this broken and confused situation to bring about his will, this surprising broken situation and he used it for himself. But what we can't forget here is that we're all right in the middle of our own broken and confused stories, right? We're all right in the middle of this too. And, and God is still in the business of using our brokenness and our confusion to bring about his glory. Amen? He's still in the business of that. And so sometimes I walk around and I hear Christ followers and they're saying things, they're just worrying aloud whether either to themselves or to others, they're talking to me about it, and almost like audibly wondering just, is God still in control? You know, with everything that's happening, whether it's new presidents or new world leaders or new terrorist groups or the direction that culture is taking our youth and gender confusion and all these things that are just ludicrous to us, and people are wondering, is God still in control? And people genuinely have an issue with that, is is God still over us? And my reaction to that is just to ask myself, like, when did my God shrink, right? Like, when did my God shrink and when did his power cease to reach to the edges of the earth? Because the God that I know does not concern himself with the actions of humans. Our actions don't determine how God feels about anything. It's like Pastor Al said in his, in his uh, political sermon he gave a, a few weeks back, in that God's not sitting upstairs. He didn't see who won the election or what, what news is happening, and he's not like, Man, what am I going to do, do now? No, he is sovereign. And, and when I lose sight of this, I just have to go back and read. And I don't have a slide for you, but I'll just read it for you really quickly. Um, Revelation 4, just a piece of it. And, and it's just, it talks about the throne room of God. And it just reminds me who this God is that I serve. And so I start to wonder, is God in control? And it's just silly in light of this. So let me read you just a quick part of Revelation 4. So in your seat, I don't know if you want to read along or if you want to just close your eyes and think about it, but this is the throne room of God seen by John. And just imagine, just try, it's hard because we have human minds and these are human words trying to describe something outside of us. But just try and imagine what John is seeing here because this is a really powerful scene. This is the throne room of God. And this is John writing and he says, starting in verse two, and instantly I was in the spirit and I saw a throne in heaven and someone was sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian, and the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. And 24 thrones surrounded him, 
and 24 elders sat on them. They were clothed in white and had gold crowns on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning and came rumbles of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches burning flames. These are the sevenfold spirit of God. And in front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystal. That does not sound like a God who is at all worried about the events of our lives, who is at all worried about the confusion and the brokenness that we live in, right? Sometimes we get in these situations and, and there's things in our, life, our lives and we're messed up with them and, and we feel like in those moments God is so far, right? Like, God, I'm so confused right now. I'm so broken in this. This, this is something I can't deal with. Like, you must be so far, God. And the truth is that nothing could be further from the truth because God, like, that's what he does is he takes brokenness and confusion and he makes it better. You know, so often when we're in these situations, we feel like he's far and he's not. He, he's right there and he's waiting to work in it. He's waiting to do something in it. And so in these situations, like Mary experienced and Joseph experienced, where they're confused and just have no idea, the question ceases to be, is my God still on that throne? Is my God still in control? And the question then becomes, um, is my heart prepared to let God work in this situation? Because this is a broken and confused thing I'm going through. God is close. Am I going to prepare my heart and humble myself wholly so that he can work in it? That's the real question we need to be talking about. So let's shift. Let's shift from God's preparation to the nativity. And let's talk about our preparation as humans, right? Let's talk about how we can be prepared for this Christmas season. I thought the best way to do this was to give you guys a couple examples of uh, what unprepared people at Christmas time look like, right? Because we're trying to prepare our hearts for Christmas, for, for Jesus, even more than that. Um, and so let's just look at a few unprepared people. And if you see any similarities to yourself up here on these slides, then it's time to hit the panic button. No, just kidding. It's time to reassess what you consider important this time of year. So here we go. Number one, unprepared people at Christmas time, they will elevate the Christmas season over everything else. Now guys, I absolutely love Christmas time. Like, I love it. It's one of my favorite times of year. I love the gifts. I love the lights when I'm not putting them up. I love the trees. I love the family. I love, like, the secret white elephant exchanges. I love everything about that. It's my personal goal to figure out who everyone has for a secret Santa in the office, and I went one for one last year, and I'm looking to go perfect again this year. Like, I love everything about Christmas, and I can't say anything against that stuff, um, but isn't it just so, so easy to get fooled into elevating these good things at Christmas over the ultimate thing? Isn't it so easy to get fooled into letting that become our focus at Christmas time? Pastor Tim Keller, he's a, he's a pastor in New York City. I love reading his stuff. It's a little over my head, but I get through it slowly. He has a great quote on what idolatry is here. He says, idolatry is turning a good thing into the ultimate thing. Ooh, right here. I don't know about you, but right here is where that hits me. Have I ever let a good thing become the ultimate thing in my life? Yes, I have. All the time I do. Because I'm like the Israelites. I worship different things. It's so hard to stay focused on God. Have you let a good thing become your ultimate thing this Christmas? Now, now the things that I've mentioned about Christmas, being with family, decorating the tree, family traditions, all these things, they're great, and they deserve our time. They do. They really do. But none of them come close to having a thriving relationship with Jesus, 
right? And I'm, I don't think, church, I don't think I'm telling you anything you don't know this morning. I don't think anyone sat there and went, oh my gosh, he's right. It is way more important to have a relationship with Jesus than open presence. That's true. I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but let me ask you this. If I was to look at your life from December 1st to December 25th, would it be painfully obvious to me what your ultimate thing is? Right? Would it be painfully obvious that Jesus is the reason for your celebration or is it a little muddled? Is it like, well, Jesus is in there, but there's lots of other good things I can't, I don't know, I can't really tell. Is it obvious to me how, or I'm sorry, what your ultimate thing is this Christmas? Uh, the Grinch, the Jim Carrey Grinch movie, was a great, Hattie Cooper, this is for you because I know it's your favorite movie too. This is a staple in the Steinman family, guys. Um, I was honestly just going to show it for my message, but then I heard Pastor Al was going to be here, and there he is in the back, so we're not going to do that, but having seen it upwards of 30 times, um, I know every scene by heart, and I know that there's a scene in there that depicts so well what can happen when we let gifts get elevated, gifts, 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 we let gifts get elevated above everything else, right, and what happens when we let a good thing become the ultimate thing in our lives, so we're going to show a really quick uh, clip here from the Grinch. Oh, all right, got cut off a little short. Um, those, of you, those of you Grinch lovers like me out there, you know the next five seconds gets a little inappropriate for church, so we had to cut it a little short. The Hamiltons were honestly wishing that it went that far. I can see them laughing right now. Um, okay, so don't let a good thing become the ultimate thing. Don't let gifts, don't let anything become your ultimate thing this Christmas. Number two, uh, the number two thing unprepared people will do this Christmas is that unprepared people will not use Christmas as a chance to share the gospel. Um, guys, Christmas is the perfect time of year to stand out and be a light in a spiritually dark world. There's so many opportunities for us to stand out in this world at Christmas, and, and, and a few of them are, you know, when the world gets wrapped up in holiday drama, when they get so frazzled by every little thing, we get to display this peace that is beyond understanding, right? We get to be peaceful in the midst of the crazy. Um, when the world clings to a shallow temporal happiness that's going to fade away in January, we get to live lives of eternal joy, right? And that doesn't fade for us. We get to live that out all year round, not just this time of year. And when the world says that it's time to point to me and think about what I want, um, you get to point to the king and say, it's not about me this time of year. It's not about what I want. It's about celebrating him and living for him and just modeling that life for people in your life. Now, guys, I'm not sure how you are going to communicate that joy and that hope that God has given you this Christmas, but I know one thing for sure. I know that you're not gonna be able to do it with an unprepared heart, right? I know that you can only do that when you prepare your heart, and I know um, that having a prepared heart this Christmas it's not something that's going to happen on its own, right? It's not something that you stumble into. Excuse me. Um, this last week at youth group, we referenced Psalm 131. And in Psalm 131, David is before God, and he says to himself, Lord, I quiet my soul. Lord, I, I choose to be silent before you. And David is listening to God, right? And the point of the youth group lesson was, it was about quiet time, and it was about how we don't stumble into a quiet time with God. We don't stumble into hearing the voice of God. We have to do things. We have to get quiet. We have to make a conscious choice, just like David did, to carve out time in our day to hear him, right? It's a conscious choice, and so I would argue that we have our own conscious choice this Christmas, 
right? And that choice is that we have to make a decision in ourselves to remember to make the ultimate thing the ultimate thing. You see, guys, we can be unprepared this Christmas, and we can let it just be another Christmas in the books, and it will probably be great, honestly. Like, we will probably still enjoy family and get good gifts and make great memories, and it will still be a good Christmas. Or you can, right now, today, make a choice to be prepared this Christmas, to prepare your heart for Jesus the way that God prepared the way for him in the nativity. And guys, it's, it's not an easy thing to do. It's easy to sit up here and talk about it. It's easy for me to preach that to you. And it's easy for you, the listener, to sit there and internalize that and say, yeah, that's a good thing. But as soon as you walk out that door, it becomes so much harder to make that choice to make Jesus the ultimate thing. Why? Because the culture we live in, I mean, we're like salmon going upstream. It is, everything points the opposite way. It's about you, it's about the deals, it's about the glitter. Very little, if anything, is talking about making it about Jesus. And so you have to make that choice in your heart that you are going to prepare your heart for Jesus this, this Christmas. So please do it anyways. Even though it's hard, do it anyways. And, and I just ask you, as Christmas approaches, just take stock of what is important to you. Just take stock of what your ultimate thing is. If there's one thing this Christmas that I have to have, that I have to do right what is it going to be? What is your ultimate thing going to be this year? You see, guys, there are lots of good things, like we just mentioned. There's so many good things about Christmas, but only one of those things can be the ultimate thing, so let it be the right thing this year, um, and let us prepare our hearts accordingly so that we can make that decision. Will you guys stand with me, and we will close in prayer. Father God, I thank you for this morning, and I just pray that your words... um, we're truly your words and not mine, God, and that it spoke to someone here and that we would just prepare our hearts for you this Christmas, God. It's so easy to just put other things before you and it's, there's a lot of good things around, God, but let your, please let us make you be the ultimate thing, God, because that's what we want. Be with us this week as we go out, um, as we prepare for Christmas. Let us be that light in the world and display that peace and that joy that is not contingent upon a time of year, um, but that it always exists because you exist in us, God. Thank you for this time again and just bless these people as we leave today. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.